Welcome back to the Shifting Podcast. I'm Ed Rudisell, and it's been a little while. Um, taking a pretty long hiatus. Wasn't even sure if the show was going to come back. Um, it's been a pretty rough few years for everybody included. But to have that first episode back, really thought that it would be there would be no one better out there to talk to than Chris Montana from Denord Spirits in Minneapolis. They've been kind of ground zero for a lot of the action that's hadn't been happening for the last three years. And so uh, welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. <laughs> well, let's not get that far. Man, so much stuff going on with you. You know, we were chatting a little bit before we uh, started recording today, but uh, obviously we've all been kind of slogging through the pandemic. Don't want to dwell on that. We're, we're all pretty sick of COVID at this point, I'm sure. But, um, you know, you've got so much going on up there. You're making big waves with the Nord. Like you showed up on my radar. Really? God, it had to have been very shortly after you opened the distillery. Uh, what what year did you guys get started? So we started 2013. Okay, yeah, I think you probably showed up. I mean, again, we're in the Midwest. You're not that far away. But uh, even still, so 2013, kind of the beginning of the craft spirits uh, boom. That was um, kind of a big jump in. There wasn't really much precedent and certainly no Black-owned micro distilleries at the time. Not then. And at that point, so we're in Minnesota. Minnesota had some pretty bad laws. And so we really didn't have any. There, there was one micro that had opened uh, out in the middle of the state, um, the guy who had a lot of money, uh, <laughs> I think put it there for his wife, but, um, but yeah, we really didn't have any and the floodgates got open when some of the laws changed. And then there were about five of us who went through it and none of us had really any idea what we were getting into. Sure. I mean, that was a time when I feel like a lot of people didn't really have any idea. Cause that's when kind of the, the dominoes started falling in a lot of States, especially in the Midwest where we've got, <laughs> such twisted laws it's always hard to explain liquor laws to people that don't live in the midwest like oh no you can't buy alcohol here on sunday although you can do that now we changed that in indiana but you know um so as things were that was really kind of happening nationwide at the time so uh what were you doing prior that that kind of wanted to kick your butt into <laughs> the distilling business well i started my legal career and the distillery are pretty much overlapping one of them would make me money and the other one I thought would make me happier. And um, I chose the one that would make me happier. And I'm glad that I did. I still, you know, I, I still interact with, I have a lot of friends who are lawyers and most of them, the happiest ones I know um, were lawyers and aren't now. Yeah. It's not, I mean, there really isn't anything. If you were to look at my past on paper, there's nothing that would say, yeah, that guy's going to start a distillery. But as I found a lot of the people that have you know, either done something interesting or not, but have just started up a, a distillery. Like you find out their backgrounds, it's from all over the board. Absolutely, yeah. I'm on this show alone. I've, I'm always shocked by where people came came at it from. And when those doors did start opening, 2011, 12, 13, 14, you know, across the Midwest and really na nationwide, um, there were no rules to speak of. You know, um, it was like, how is this supposed to be done? And no one really had an answer. <laughs> so, and if I I listened to an interview with you at one point a couple of years ago, and I believe you you made a comment of how how little money you guys had to get started, and my jaw dropped. I mean, that it would have been impossible to open a restaurant with that much money. And yeah, I was uh, floored. Yeah, sixty grand. Here, here's the thing: like we exist today, but we've had a bunch of you know we've had some bad luck, but we've also had a lot of good luck. Uh, it's not enough, and it wasn't enough then. And that's when everyone didn't. I mean, when we got licensed, 
we were the first ones licensed in Minneapolis. No one had ever seen a distillery before. They had no idea. If we had to go through that process now, the 60 grand wouldn't cover the contingencies. <laughs> right. We need to do. I mean, we had stuff that we built ourselves. You know, we had, had to scrape by working day jobs and then stilling at night and bottling parties, you know, all of that stuff. And if I had to do it again, there's a good side to it of being just chronically broke. <laughs> which is that you don't have somebody else to call, right? It's not somebody else's problem. Like if, if something's going to get solved, you're going to have to be the one to solve it. So you are your own plumber, electrician, all the other things. And so you, you get to understand what it takes to run the business, you know, from every single level. And the best bosses, the best CEOs, right, actually know their business. They've done all of the jobs. And so that's that's the plus side of it. The minus side of it is that I was gray before everybody else. <laughs> you're crazy stressed out and you're always behind the eight ball. Like one screw up and the whole thing can go up in flames. Yeah, that's the the big fear, especially in any anywhere in hospitality. Uh we're obviously not in production, but yeah, and and if anything, COVID has shown shown us just exactly how fragile it can be. Um and so you guys, um, I mean, elephant in the room, you guys are in Minneapolis. So right at kind of ground zero um, with George Floyd, the murderous police, and it, just all the kind of insanity. In, in fact, I was sitting and doing an interview with um, Josh Davis from Brown and Balanced um, in Chicago the night that police station got set on fire. Because um, we were talking like 20 minutes later and we're like, holy shit, what? You know, and that was really just kind of the beginning. And you guys were really kind of right in the middle of it. I mean, you actually sustained substantial damage at the distillery as well. We did. And each one of those. I mean, again, this is our this is our backyard. And for people who don't know the, the Twin Cities area, um, the what most people saw on TV from Minneapolis is an area in Longfellow, the neighborhood Longfellow uh, in the third precinct police department, which is uh, on Lake Street, which is a major thoroughfare going through the cities. And we are on, we share a block with that uh, police department. And so this was our, this was our backyard. Um, and yeah, we were there. I mean, we were there each one of those days. I mean, the, the first day of protest, which was, you know, largely peaceful. Um, we were out there giving out hand sanitizer. Again, it's, it's now looking back and you're like, oh, of course, all these events make sense. But we forget the context that not only was it COVID, but this was, and this was a state that was taking COVID seriously. So no one had been outside. No one had been together. Right? And we all thought this may be the apocalypse. And so, you know, we were kind of concerned. We're like, well, if all these people came together and it really was a beautiful protest, I mean, everybody was there. And it was, it was, you know, as, as a black man who's watched a number of black men get killed, um, you look at the protest and it's everyone who already knew that that was going to happen. And the fact that there were so many different people there, I was like, this is amazing. And what a shame it would be if they all got COVID. Right. And right. Yeah. So we were out there giving out hand sanitizer until we couldn't. We got tear gas for that. That was fun. Um, but yeah, it was absolutely surreal. And, you know, it it obviously and, you know, we can talk about it, but it, it kicked off a number of changes for us and, and definitely sharpened our focus. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I wanted to like address it, because it did kind of lead you into some other leadership roles where like not only are you kind of leading the charge with, uh, you know, distilling in, in the Twin Cities, but also now you've got a couple other uh, foundations that you've worked with. And uh, you even, if I recall right, testified in a congressional hearing, right, about um, the restaurant industry and, and, and hospitality industry, right? I did. We had a lot of support um, 
from our senior senator Amy Klobuchar, and uh, you know, and we also have you know we have a, a congressman who comes from a distilling family in Minnesota, Dean Phillips, and so anytime that we can you know help out, we always do, and giving that perspective uh, from a because we straddle both, right? We are in intrinsically tied to hospitality. Any craft brand will tell you that you don't build a craft brand in a liquor store. You want to build it so it can be successful in the liquor store, but to build it, you have to build it on-premise. You have to go to the bars. Um, it's, it really is the only avenue. That's where most of our sales are today. I suspect it will be that way for, for quite some time. And so when the restaurants close down, we watch all of our business and in an instant. And, you know, so we were... We were all too happy to be able to support the argument that these restaurants needed some help. And, you know, it was, it, I think it was a good place and the right place for Congress to step up. Unfortunately, as we all know, we went through that process, right? Uh, they did and they did it, right? Like, uh, but some people were benefited from it and that's better than nothing. Yeah, I was definitely very outspoken on this show about what, what Congress was not doing. And um, it was just, at, at a certain point, it just felt like screaming into the void, you know, when it was obvious that they weren't going to refund any of these uh, these funds actually that were intended to help. And, you know, the one that would have helped us the most uh, or me the most anyway, would have been the restaurant revitalization fund, which uh, I don't personally know anybody that got that. Um, I know people did, but I don't personally know any of them, at least in Indianapolis. I mean, I do outside of the city, but uh yeah, I mean, I lost. Uh, well, now I can count three due to COVID. Um, so down to two. Which now, with a few years, you know, to look back, as I'm getting older and I've worked so many damned hours over the last three years, I'm not. I'm okay with not having five restaurants to bounce between at the moment. But but I can't, I'm not pleased that they're gone. You know, you know, I still miss miss them and miss the. the the family that we all have, you know, at work when we when we come to build something together. Yeah, I mean, we had a cocktail room. We don't have it today. There's a couple of, that, but it, but the last day of the cocktail room was uh, what the what the 16th of March, right in 2020. And after that, uh, they all got shut down, and ours never reopened. And so that was a huge part of the DNA of our company. It was most of our revenue, but it was a huge part of the DNA of our company because it's it was prior to that. It's just me in a room. Right. And it's me in the room watching Snatch and Big Lebowski and <laughs> wait, watching this trickle of alcohol come off the still, you know, and just hoping that I'll make enough and that I can actually meet orders and things like that. But once you start bringing people in, and you start engaging with the community, you start to realize that a, that a business that nobody really needs, right, making alcohol can still be a community asset. And that's not how we started, but it's something that we got taught. And all of the restaurants, all of the good ones that I've ever been to, they all serve that purpose. And so, you know, we didn't want to, this is, this is key. My wife just came in and brought me a glass of whiskey. Uh, <laughs> hey, where's my wife with my yeah. glass of whiskey? Yeah, right. Not to set the bar there, but, but yeah, but also it, it's funny, like what you say about the restaurant revitalization, which I'm sure is not a topic you want to spend too much time talking about, but it, it underscored for me, there were a lot of people who worked really hard, both in Congress and outside to get that program going. And as small business owners, we have a, well, you just got to get shit done type of a mindset, right? It's flex or die. And, you know, that's, we all had to do that. 
And the only people left standing are the ones who are able to do that. We could say, all right, we did this yesterday. We need to do something different today. And that's how fast we have to move. And Congress just can't do that. It's just, it's not built to be nimble. It is built specifically to not be nimble, right? They're supposed to, it's supposed to be a slow moving beast. And so I think for people who are looking at, you know, the end marching inexorably towards them, it wasn't much consolation to know where there's people working on this. We're like, we need action today. We needed it yesterday. And if we don't get it until tomorrow, we might not be here to experience it, right? So I, I get that on both sides, right? But I know there were people who were working very hard on it. We had a, a chance to to work with some of them, but. Oh, no, I mean, like for the, let me say for those of us in, you know, on the restaurant operator side of it, no, it's like the, your voices were were incredibly important at that time, uh, you know, I don't have the ear of a congressman, <laughs> at least not yet. But, um, you know, I I spoke out as much as I could on like, you know, local media, anybody that called for an interview, I just committed myself to like, I'll do, I'll do every interview. Um, because it's not, this problem isn't going to resolve itself. Or as you said, once uh, legislation is moving forward, it, it just moves so slowly. I, I remember, you know, he hearing news of like, well, we hope to have this approved in the next 90 days. I'm like 90 days, <laughs> which is light speed for them, right? right. That's light speed. Yeah. But again, we're like, look, I got payroll. Yeah. Right. The whole idea of the business is that people were going to come here and spend money. They can't do that anymore. So how do I, how do I, again, like the two things just don't line up and it, it is a damn shame because there are a lot of places that aren't here today, you know, in part because of that. And, you know, it's sad because that's, you know, your bars, your restaurants, the places where people gather, that's a, that's a fabric of a community. There isn't a cool community in America that doesn't have, that. if you walk into it and it's got any kind of vibe, there are a few places that they're going to name. Like, oh, this is where we go. This is where we go. You got to check this place out. And you talk to 100 people, they're all going to name those places. And that's because they they are the community. They bring people together. There are a lot of those places aren't there anymore. It absolutely devastated the cocktail scene in Indy. I mean, what, is, uh, what does the scene look like um, now with you guys up there? I mean, you know, being in these somewhat smaller markets, I mean, we're not New York, San Francisco, Chicago. Um, you know, when your craft scene relies on five bars, six bars. And you, you know, if you lose 80% of them, that leaves you with one. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's where we got crunched is that we just didn't have enough to be able to sustain, you know, a hit where like, well, 75% of our bars are going to close. You know, if you're in San Francisco, you still have a ton of great places open if, if, if that many close, but you know, certainly not around here. How does it look in, in Minnesota? Well, I think it, it accelerated a trend that had already started. And yes. Well, that's true. So Minneapolis, and a lot of, at least I've noticed, a lot of Midwestern cities were like this, where you have these smaller, you know, they might only serve beer, maybe beer and wine, but these smaller little spots, that's your neighborhood joint. And they were wiped out. That trend had already started, um, but they couldn't, they couldn't keep up. And the state, so Minnesota did make it possible for you to do takeout cocktails and things like that. That's great. Um, and they did it for everyone except for the distilleries. Oh no. <laughs> so the, the wineries already could basically do that anyway. The breweries, you could walk out with a growler, uh, but they didn't let the distilleries do that, uh, which is too bad, 
Um, and there are distilleries who were alive then who aren't alive now, and they really could have been helped by that. But the restaurants were able to do that. And that's relevant if you've got the kind of restaurant where people are like, yeah, I'm going to take a, a to-go cocktail out of there. But for the places that were, you know, more the watering hole, you're going to go there and get your beer, um, doesn't doesn't really work. And so they really had no lifeline. And a lot of those places, again, you're not going there for the food. And we have some of the iconic ones have survived, right? Like the home of the Juicy Lucy, the first Juicy Lucy bar, Matt's, right? Like Matt's is still there, but a lot of the places like that, uh, they're gone. And a lot of other ones, you know, it, it also hastened some of the consolidation that we see. I mean, the, the restaurant groups that say, all right, you know, like you're in a bad spot. That's my opportunity. And we're going to get that real estate and we're going to, you know, turn it into, you know, basically change the concept to work with what we have. So, we have a lot of places that in my mind, um, if you just put your hand over the top of the menu, you, you could be in any number of places, right? Uh, so it's that side of it I'm, I'm not thrilled about. I mean, I like, I like that. That's what we said with our places. We wanted to be, we wanted to have the vibe of a dive bar because everyone is welcome in a dive bar, right? Be trashy or anything, but like, I love dive bars and, you know, it's it's a little more sterile today. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of that, just off the off the topic, uh, well, on the topic, but what's what's your favorite dive bar you've been to in the country? In the country? Ooh, that's tough. I know it is tough. <laughs> that's really tough because um, it also depends on some of the most interesting. I mean, Snake and Jake's Christmas Tree in uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. New Orleans. I mean, that was, but also on New Orleans, um, you know, there's a little joint called Cajun Mike's which is in the CBD and uh, in Minnesota, mats, uh, mats or Palmer's easy. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Cajun Mike's best roast beef po' boy, right? It's, it doesn't look like much and it ain't much. Right. And, you know, you might get cussed out by a bartender, but it's, <laughs> it's great. It's got vibe. You know what I mean? Those are my I favorite. Know when I've been there, the the crusty old bartenders, and that if you dare order something with more than two ingredients, you know, that's, you know, I've I've had, and of course, a lot of it is experiential. You know, well, I had a great night here, and it's always got, holds a place in my heart. You know, a lot of a lot of late nights at Max Club Deuce, but uh, <laughs> you know, everybody's uh, got one, right? And everyone needs one, and neighborhoods need them. Absolutely. I mean, it ties right into what you were talking about, you know, of being that kind of lifeblood for not only a city, but the actual community. And, you know, before we, I get too long-witted and chatty, it's been so long since I've actually interviewed anyone. I like just happy to be back speaking with someone that, you know, I've just kind of been locked in a room for the last few years without having that kind of creative outlet or out just even in a connection with people in the industry, you know, because we've just been grinding nose down do the thing, get it done. And you kind of forget that we're all, all doing this. But um, as we talk about that community, you know, obviously distilleries got called on to really step up in a very big way when hand sanitizer started like disappearing off the shelves entirely. And uh, I know that you guys were heavily involved in that as well, which kind of, you know, led to several other um, foundational steps, but um, you know, how quickly were you guys able to like convert over and start producing hand sanitizer? Because as you said, we were only a couple months in when the protests and, and the killing of George Floyd happened. So, I mean, it was really necessary to get people out there and, and keep them as safe as we could as they were protesting. Yeah. So it, it really is. There's a series of events that I, 
that looking back at it, people were like, oh, it's pretty shrewd business moves you made there, Chris Montana. I'm like, yeah, they weren't really. Like, I, I didn't have a grand plan, but the first move that we made is because we we had the bar, that's our main source of income, bartenders wanted to work, but we didn't really know how to keep anyone safe. And hand sanitizer was just something that we couldn't get. And so the first hand sanitizer we made was actually just for us. We just made it so that way our bartender, so when you came into the bar, we would have it, the bartenders would have it as they're touching money and exchanging things. And again, this is very early COVID. The way we were talking about this, it sounded like many of us were gonna die. And so we were, right. everyone was terrified of what is this thing and what's it going to do to us. And so that was our first move. When the, when we shut down the cocktail room, that was functionally in my mind, I said, well, that's the end because we don't have one. Um, we don't have bars to sell to anymore. Right. Two, 60, 70% of our income depending on the time of year, comes from our cocktail room. So if you take those two things together, there's no business left. And what we had is we still had some high-proof spirit. And so we said, fine, you know, if if this is all going to, like, the business is going to be over, we might as well go down swinging. And so we just made all the alcohol that we had into hand sanitizer uh, to give away. And considering what would happen later with George Floyd, it was ironic that the first, that we gave it to first responders, or the first place that got it was a Plymouth uh, Police Department. Right. And we gave it homeless shelters, we gave it, you know, wherever. But because of that, people found out that, oh, well, you can make hand sanitizer. We want it. And then we ended up getting people coming to us to order it. And a funny side thing that we never really talk about, but we had this grand plan and we worked it out with Tattersall Distilling in also in Minneapolis. And John and I worked on this. Our idea was that we were looking at the prices and there were, you could gallon of hand sanitizer was over a hundred dollars, right? It was oh, nuts. Yeah. And we looked at the numbers and we said, we can produce this for 10 bucks, right? And we'll produce it at cost for the state of Minnesota. So we went through this whole process of figuring out how we could do this. And we proposed it to the state of Minnesota, but because hand sanitizer wasn't on this particular list, they couldn't fund it. And so we had done all this work talking about how we could get this at scale to get it into all the hospitals and everything else um, that then we said, well, we have, we have, we kind of have the, the bones of this and we have people who are reaching out to us. And so we created this kind of impromptu product called all hands, right? We call it all hands for all hands. And that the sales from all hands is what supported Denord at the same time, because we didn't have the state buying it. Right, which we were going to do it at cost. Mm -hmm. The state wasn't doing it. So we sold it and we sold it to United Postal Service. We sold it to you know larger companies. And then that could subsidize some of the work we were doing on the back end. So we also were giving it away and we kept the um all the childcare centers for I don't know, about two years. Uh we did every child care center in Minnesota. Right. And we were sending because, again, once the child care centers are closed, like I have three kids, like if you don't have child care, you can't work. Everything shuts down. Right. So um, that allowed us to, to keep that going. We did it as long as we could until we you know, literally ran out of money. But um, it was a commercial sale of that, which came fortuitously because, you know, just again, it's you do whatever's next. Right. Yeah. And that, um, you know, as you start speaking to. Some of those things, all the moves you were making, 
during the last three years, we've now seen you involved in uh, Denord Foundation, which, uh, and also I want to I want to talk a little bit about um, about Step Up as well. Um, but it, it, what, addition in addition to the distillery, and I promise you, we're going to talk about your alcohol. We're going to talk about your booze, and we're going to move some bottles, people. Uh, but, you know, uh, tell me a little bit about how you got involved in a, a lot of this um, not-for-profit work, because it's, to say you're a leader in the industry is an understatement. You know, I mean, you've gone from like, hey, we're just making booze in Minneapolis to like, you know, really being someone that people go to, well, with Step Up, to learn how to do the job, <laughs> you know? So, uh, you know, fill me in a little bit about on some of the uh, not-for-profit work you've been doing. Yeah, so the funny thing is, is that I am... I have a love-hate relationship with nonprofits. <laughs> the love part is that, you know, at one of my earlier jobs, I used to work for a, a nonprofit called Wellstone Action. We did political organizing and training people and good work. Um, and the people I know who work in nonprofits got great hearts and are doing good work. The hate part of it is that nonprofits, in my mind, should should work themselves out of existence. Right. The whole point is to solve a problem. It is not to be just perpetually there. Right? And you end up with, you know, the nonprofit industrial complex that you know you have nonprofits to support the nonprofits. And, you know, and it just keeps building and building. And when you're giving a dollar to solve a problem, some of it just gets caught up in sustaining the nonprofits. And so I have this love-hate relationship. So it's actually highly ironic that I would end up working with as many nonprofits as I do. The first one, um, you know, the first one really is the American Craft Spirits Association. So that's, and I had uh, jumped into a leadership role there because of other issues I was seeing in the industry and lack of diversity and, and so on. But, you know, with the Dunord Foundation, the Dunord Foundation happened because we were a little more successful at, at raising money than we thought we were going to be. And when we, so 2020, you know, we had fires, we had all these things going on, but we also had insurance and a lot of people didn't. And so people wanted to reach out and help us. And it became very clear that we were about to have this windfall event. And all of this money was going to come showering down on Nord. And um, it, it wasn't, I, I don't want to say we weren't deserving of it, but I think there were others who were, who were much more deserving of it. And so we wanted to find a way to deflect and to point that energy, you know, because we had the press, but there were a lot of businesses that didn't have the press, but are arguably as important, if not much more important to the survival of a, of a healthy community. And so we created a, a GoFundMe and set the threshold at 30 grand. And, you know, this was my wife and I in a, in a hotel room in Bloomington, because I had an apartment, but the apartment got set on fire. And so we had the uh, hotel room and we set it up and we left for the day to go up to work at the food bank that we were running out of uh, the warehouse that was set on fire. And by the time we got there, I think we'd hit the 30,000 mark. And so then we bumped it up, right? And like, okay, well, now we're over a 30K. So we bumped it up to like 50K thinking we're not going to hit that. And we hit that. We bumped it up to $100,000 and then we hit that. And honestly, at the time, we're like, we're just sick of having to log back in and do this because we were so busy. We're just trying to keep this food bank running. And so we said, screw it, we'll bump it up all the way to a million bucks. And we we didn't quite get a million dollars, but we got damn close. And that, the outpouring of support, and it was nationwide, worldwide. I had a woman send me a letter, it's, you know, 
Al Franken came on and he did a thing with Sarah Silverman and myself. And, you know, they wrote a $50,000 check. I had a woman send me $5, like, uh, you know, check for $5 and wrote a note saying that, you know, she wanted to help. And like that $5 meant as much and more than, you know, Franken and Silverman doing the 50,000, not to, you know, disparage either, but like it's people were just the outpouring of support was insane. And the way GoFundMe works is that that money comes to you which means that it would be taxed. And so just to keep it from being taxed, like all these people didn't give this money to have a third of it just disappear in tax. So we created a nonprofit and that's how that nonprofit started. And then we started with, you know, three goals. Um, you know, one was we were doing the food bank. We needed to do that because we didn't have any grocery stores. We needed to keep that going. And two, we wanted to keep these businesses afloat. So we gave away most of that money and $15,000 grants to other businesses who weren't getting the, the attention that we were. And the last one was, let's do something to make this not happen in the future. And that is about supporting those entrepreneurs and particularly those entrepreneurs of color who don't see themselves in the business community. And so it's not a shock that when their anger boils over, that it can boil over and the business community doesn't look like them. So that, mm -hmm. again, it was another one of these things that it wasn't part of a master plan, but it made the most sense at the time and you're rolling with the punches and that's what kind of drove us into it. I'm glad that it did because it was a kick in the ass and it, and it really is what fuels me today. The Step Up Foundation, on the other hand. I don't know of anything else like it. So yeah, explain what you do with uh, what, well, what you do and what the foundation does. So the, the origin of Step Up was um, actually goes back to a convention in 2015 and it was in Chicago. And I went up to Paul Letko um, was the owner of Few Spirits. And I asked him if he had really noticed the lack of diversity in the room because there were about a thousand people there and I was the black guy, right? And Paul, if you've ever, if you haven't had Paul in here, you should. Um, but Paul is a no bullshit dude. And he was just like, no, I haven't. I was like, <laughs> right? I was like okay. I was like, you know, and, that, and if you know Paul, that's Paul. He's just going to tell you the truth. Uh, but I couldn't not notice it, right? Um, and so I had decided that I was going to join the American Craft Spirits Association, run for the board, which I did. And then later I ran for president. And I served two terms as president. And the reason why I did that is because I wanted, one, I wanted ACSA to be a little more focused on the small distillers, not the ones who had kind of already made it, but the ones who were trying to, to claw our way up. But also that we needed to address the lack of diversity in the industry. I mean, it was it was appalling at the time. And so I created uh, a strategic plan for the ACSA. And one part of the strategic plan was an internship program. And the reason why I put it in the strategic plan is because like, I'm not going to be president forever. And when I'm gone, someone's going to have to affirmatively take this out. Right. And so if we can agree that this is not only a, an issue, but something we're going to do something about, because I don't want to talk about it. I want to do something. Um, then that would be a step forward. Well, that got in, but then it didn't move, right? I cycled off. There's always, there are always just a pile of issues that you have to, to handle and things like this, which are things you'd like to see happen, but aren't necessarily critical in most people's minds kind of fall to the wayside. Well, 2020 happens and it got resurrected. And the question was, well, what do we do? And I was like, well, we, you have the basic blueprint of what I think we should do. And what ACSA did, because I'm no longer in leadership at ACSA, ACSA took that kernel of an idea that I had, and they put some real meat on the bones. And the program as it exists today is much better than what I thought it was going to look like. Now, 
it is a program where anyone who has an interest in breaking into this industry and breaking in is the right word because how do you get started in spirits production there aren't many paths in there now are some university programs and that's great but you know they're, they're also you know new to the game and when i was starting i don't know that they were there yeah someone in the industry i if you told me tomorrow i needed to start that path i wouldn't know where to start either and you know, that's with friends like you in the industry. So, and again, what you do, and this is this isn't a knock, and this is the thing that I, I understand it. Like, what do you do when you're when you're going to go out and you're going to start a, a new distillery? Well, you probably go to a brewery or something because there might not be a distillery next to you, and you find someone who knows a little thing about brewing. And you say, all right, I want to teach you some things about distilling. Well, that population it becomes incestuous, right? And there isn't a way for new blood to come in. The population is overly white and male. And it's always feeding from that same population. And so it becomes stereotypical to say, oh, well, who's your brewer, right? And it's like, well, we got an idea who he looks like. And so that's who gets hired, right? And it just keeps going. There has to be some way, and it's not going to happen naturally. You have to do something to artificially change the system. And the thing that we wanted to do, that I wanted to do way back then, that the, the board now um, wants to do, is we don't want people to get hired because they're a woman or because they're brown, right? We want you to get hired because you're badass. And so we to get that we put together a program that puts you in right now you um, and this exists today we have we have graduates who are employed in the industry but um, you're going to intern at four different locations a distributorship and then three different distilleries and those are distilleries that you know that go as big as houses owned by Diageo to tiny little places that are more to Nord size we had a um, what eight oaks out in Pennsylvania. Right, farm distillery. What is it? West Westward um, in in Oregon, right? So a large micro um, and everything in between. And they're honestly, I want to be a step up intern, right? I mean, no one. Has yeah, that's a broad of, education. <laughs> it's amazing, right? And then go find a distiller who's worked in a distributorship, right? Who understand because that's our customer. We actually sell the distributors, right? We also have to sell to, you know, the retail end, but really the distributor stands in the middle and we can get into the craziness that is that system. Yeah, I know every producer loves distribution. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Right? I'll I'll be I'll be good. Um Chris Underwood is on the on the board, right? He comes from the distribution side, right? So I'm, you know, he's a good guy and he's done a lot to help. Um, but yeah, just the, we don't have that experience. We don't understand what how distributors think. We aren't in their shoes. We don't so we now have interns who are going through, they're learning, and this isn't like a, you get to be an intern and you come here to, to clean the floors, right? It's, we want you to leave here with a picture of the industry with skills that are marketable, right? So you can get a job and work in this industry and we'll keep feeding those interns through and through that. Um, and there are a number of other programs now that have, that have popped up that are, are helping to diversify the industry. It's like, that's what it takes. It takes that extra work. Yeah, I mean, it's when I look through the foundations, like programs. I mean, it's it is. It's completely insane the access that you've got, and you know, like you said, you know, if you you started out, you just what? What do you go to a brewery, a distillery? But even in in that case, if you get in and you don't have to just become the person that squeegees the floors, that's one, and then that's it. You know, you've got to go out and try to hunt down another one. But yeah, the access to being able to go to multiple distilleries, look at a distribution, it's, it's, there's nothing like it anywhere, 
much less to like contribute to the diversity of the industry. Yeah. And I give a lot of credit. I mean, if you look at the partners, if you look at the people that we work with, I mean, those, so Republic National uh, on the distributor side, right? They, these are these are companies who are making themselves available to bring somebody in to open the doors, to open the books, to share the secrets of how mm-hmm. they do what they do, all in the interest of diversifying the industry. They don't get anything else from it, right? And so I, and for some of them, I mean, a small family-owned farm distillery in rural Pennsylvania, right? I mean, they, it takes resources. They have to commit an awful lot to pull this up. And so what was back in, you know, 2015, 16 through 18, I often felt very isolated. And I often felt like I had the right argument, but it was one of those like asking people, do you like puppies? It's like, sure, we like puppies. It's like, okay, well, then now we need to do something. Like, okay, well, that's that's a little different, right? Right. Now you're talking about investment. Um, It's not like that anymore. Now there are so many people in the room and they're all pulling in the same direction. They're all trying to make this thing happen. And we just didn't have it. I mean, 2020 kicked us all in the ass and there were a lot of really nasty things that happened in 2020, but sitting here in 2023, I didn't think that I was gonna be in a world that had so many people who don't look like me, who do look like me and you know, whatever, who are all saying, this is something that we need to work on. We need, right. And we're not just gonna be eloquent about it and, and say pretty things, right? And we're not just gonna have a policy it says, yeah, we're equal opportunity. I was like, no, we're going to recognize reality and we're going to do something about it. So if you, for anyone who is interested in the Step Up Foundation, I think, you know, please go at stepupfoundation.org, you know, check it out. Um, and also check out the partners, check out the people that we're working with and understand what the fact, what that says about their character and their investment and, you know, the the industry that we want to see tomorrow. Yeah, that's what I was kind of getting at in the beginning is you've taken it, you know, being right there in the middle of all the protest, civil unrest, you literally lost portions of your business due to fires uh, being set, etc. And to like, not (laughs) remain jaded of like, screw the cops, fuck Minneapolis, you know, all that, like, just be able to like, all right, let's buckle down. Let's take what's happened and make it better. Um, and to be able to accomplish that is an even bigger feat. Uh, I don't I don't know where you find time to make actual alcohol anymore. At the heart of all of this now for what, nine, coming up on 10 years now, right? Is Denord Spirits. Yeah, and the way I make time for it is like most things in business, as you grow, you try to work with smarter and smarter people, hopefully people who are smarter than you. And bring them in and some of them to me <laughs> and then they all show you how dumb what you were doing was and they and they make things better right and that's that's i have been you know blessed lucky whatever you want to call it i've been all those things because i've had so many great people come through and have an interest in in what we do and then join the team at denord and make things better so maria kusteritz who right now is biking across iowa she is, is a head of production Right. And um, she's she has made those processes better. She makes spirits, the spirits that we sell, she makes them better than I do. Right. And that's great. And, you know, you take the ego out of it. Right. Like, that's great. And for me, the I love the science of distilling. I love the science of the industry. Right. Pushing paper. And that is not really that sexy to me. But, you know, I also, you know, game recognize game. Like I, I when you 
you see somebody else and they're taking it and they're looking at your process and they're like, well, why do we do it this way? It's just how I did it. I'm like, yeah, well, that's dumb. Like, what if we did this? What if we did this? What if we did this? I'm like, yeah, you might, you might have, you got a good point. Right. So bringing people like Maria on, um, I've never been a good salesman, right. Bringing on, you know, we have Christine Smalley who we, you know, has worked in a number of different areas, but also, you know, target and big business and all that, bring people like that in. And then they add, that Denord team in a way that you just cannot do yourself. I I don't know of a successful business that doesn't have a team of smart people. Absolutely. So what is your uh, core lineup at the moment? Um, has anything changed from the over the last few years uh, with kind of reduction in production? Uh, but it's still, yeah. Well, I mean, you got a, a cool little contract with Delta Airlines with uh, yeah, that helps. Some, some vodka. That's pretty badass. Yeah. Yeah. And again, another one of these things where, you know, again, talk about how the winds changed um, that Delta. Deal. So the first part of your question, no, we're we're still producing the same uh, five spirits. I've always said and will continue to say it until I change my mind that uh, <laughs> I'd rather be great at the five things that we make than be good at six or seven or eight or nine or ten. Um, and I think we're great at the five that we make. Yeah, that's what the breweries do. Let them do everything under the sun. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's hard to look in the cocktail world. It's people are constantly looking for something new, something fresh. Where is the innovation? Where is it coming from? And I'm, you know, pretty old school when it comes to cocktails and and all of that. I say, do the classics well. I don't want the best peanut butter and jelly burger. <laughs> right. Yeah. And how useful is that anyway? I, you need to have that bottle that's getting picked up with half the drinks. Yeah. Yeah. Peanut butter whiskey is not getting picked up very often. So, you know, it's, and again, at the same time, you know, selling stupid numbers of cases of peanut butter whiskey. So more, uh, you know, <laughs> right. Yeah, right? I, I have no problem with other people's success, but the way that I, that, that I look at things is like, you know, we don't make a flavored vodka because you can do that at home. You can do it just as well as I could. And, you know, we, we want to stick to what we do. And the deal with Delta has been huge for us. Um, it's obviously huge exposure. Um, it, you know, for a company as big as them to work with a company as small as Denord. Is a big deal, and it and it took a lot of work because they reached out to us. We didn't go find them; they came to find us. And uh, when they first got us, we said, "Yeah, I don't think we can do that." And they were the ones who were persistent. Yeah, I would assume that's a pretty big undertaking with production. Oh, enormous, enormous! And we had to change some things to be able to deal with them, and it took a long time. And we and we told them that we're like, you know, for most of the, if they want a new product, they reach out to Diageo, Brown Form, and anybody. And those, and they all have distribution in every corner of the earth and they can snap their fingers and the products available that's not the case for us and so we had to go through a lot of work to be able to pull that off and it took you know almost a year and a half and they were patient with us they said we're gonna we're gonna do this thing we're gonna make it happen we're gonna build it with you and you know so i'm i'm very grateful to them and their team and they've been great partners so for the listeners out there um apart from the vodka what are the other four in your lineup that you've got that are at all times available at least in in the markets you're available. Yeah. So we started the vodka is the first. Um, and from there we have our prominence gin, uh, which is a kind of a, a hybrid in, in production styles between uh, Dutch Geneva and uh, London dry. Um, we have two liqueurs, our apple liqueur, uh, pronounced apple and our coffee liqueur cafe Frida, which is named after a woman who's near and dear to my heart louise borman but we knew her as frida all of her students knew her as frida and then we dedicate that one to teachers it's the only people we give discounts to our teachers 
Um, and then uh, the last one is mixed blood whiskey. And we call it mixed blood whiskey because it, that's exactly what it is. It is a it is a mix. There's whiskey that we made. There's whiskey that other people make. And transparency is a big deal. Um, and we want people to know that. And we don't want to take credit for the things that we don't, you know, make from the very beginning. But we also, you know, there's some work. And Maria has to sit back there in her mad scientist's robes and, you know, get that blend right. And so there's some work to it. And, you know, we're proud of that product. Uh, but again, that that's the reason for that name, right? Goes back to transparency. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic lineup. I've tried a few of the products that are not, unfortunately, are not in my market, but uh, I do travel and uh, we'll work on that. And you, I've, I've had bottles land on my desk. I guess I, I don't have a desk, but yeah, land in my possession. And I'm I can't even recall who brought them. But I mean, again, it's a small community. And uh, I've actually tried the the apple liqueur. Um, that mm-hmm. is one of the ones that that stood out that I remember getting down here. I have not tried your whiskey though. Uh, I assume it's peanut butter. <laughs> oh, of course, yeah, and of jelly. course it is. Oh, peanut butter and jelly. Wow, it's that's the innovation part. Now that apple one, and again, it's like of all like people who know me, they're like, yeah, apple liqueur is the last thing we thought you would make. The rule was we have to like it, right? And generally, most things that we make started with us bitching about something. And the thing that we were right. <laughs> asked about with the apple was that we kept trying these apple liqueurs. It didn't taste like any apples were harmed in the making of it, right? Like, we just wanted apple flavor. And that's that's the philosophy of Denard is we're going to be about flavors. So we're going to pick a flavor. We're going to drive it. So that gin is a lot of juniper. That doesn't mean that it's piney. I don't want to scare people off. We do a macerated process. And so it's, it's much more deep than that. But uh, with the apple, again... Like we want straight from the orchard. We want the certain types of apples and we go those lengths to make sure that we can make it and have it taste that way. Otherwise it'll just be, we don't use artificial anything. Otherwise it would be the same kind of, I don't, I don't want to throw any brands on a bus, but it would be the same fluorescent green stuff. Yeah, We, we know and, what you're talking about. You know, yeah. <laughs> right. And you know, that's, that may be for the mainstream, but it's, it's not what we wanted to put out there. Yeah. You, I mean, you live in an interesting part of the country where I, it's very like Northern European, Nordic kind of culture, you know, obviously with the Vikings, uh, you know, football team and all that. And I, you know, there's Aquavit available um, from some Minnesota distilleries. Um, you know, it's, I feel like it's almost a little bit more of a freedom to play around a little bit more uh, in Minnesota and some of those like Northern states than you get if you were like in Kentucky, you know, where no nobody's buying a, you know, aqua from Louisville or anything like that, or an apple liqueur from uh, Tennessee. And, and we have a, we have a great community. I mean, the, the community in the Twin Cities in particular is um, extremely supportive of craft on the beer side, on the spirit side. And so we are, we are very lucky to have just sitting right around the distillery and we got to grow up with them. Um, people who are, who want to support craft and our little bar when we started we only had two spirits we had vodka and um and gin and so if you think of every other bar they're all better suited to entertain patrons than we were because we just had these two spirits but people showed up i mean the only reason why we survived at all as a massively undercapitalized company was because people showed up so we had so yeah, like we have this, we had this, and we continue to have this great community that really wants to support craft. And, and you're right, it gave us the license not only to, you know, say, screw it, we want to make this huge, bold coffee liqueur, because that's the way we want to do it. Or we want to make this apple liqueur, but it also gave us the license to not make all of the other things that we didn't want to get into, right? Like I have no problem with Akavit, but I'm not the guy to make it. 
right? It's not my thing. I don't make rum because I, I know people who make really good rum and they should make really good rum. You don't want me making okay rum, right? Like we also have the license to do that. Yeah, it's a kind of an, it's definitely been an exciting time over the last 15 years, 10, 15 years and craft distillation, you know, it's getting back to all these smaller distilleries that, you know, harkens back to, you know, the founding of the country when all the distilleries were local, all of them, <laughs> you know, there wasn't any major massive uh, distribution network and, um, you know, things are changing fast <laughs> up for you, maybe faster than most, uh, you know, 10 years in what's, what's next now for Denord, or is that like, does that change on a daily basis? Cause I mean, if we look at what you've done in the last few years, it's changed pretty rapidly. Keeping up, I guess, is probably on your calendar. <laughs> I mean, keeping up is is definitely part of it. Uh, you know, we're. I wish everybody could see the look on your face when you said, and, yeah. "Yeah, keeping up." <laughs> <laughs> this is the face of small business, right? <laughs> again, like I'm not that old, but like I've got way more gray than like my friends. There's nothing fair about that. All mine yeah, came I, in the last four years. Like I saw a photo of me from 2019, and almost no gray in my beard. There's just a couple of stripes. Now my beard's almost completely gray. Yeah. Fact, I went to go get a haircut about three months ago. And I don't, I, my hair is very long now. It, I, that was, that's pandemic hair. It was really short prior to the pandemic. And uh, I actually went with my wife to one of her haircuts, same guy that cuts my hair. And uh, we walked in and he had not ever seen me with hair. And the first thing he said to me was like, wow, your beard is so white. <laughs> I was like, Thanks, asshole. You didn't know that's the first thing you noticed. <laughs> Again, you can say that to another guy. You get slapped otherwise. But like, yeah, it's it's real. The struggle is real and, and we're living through it. Um, and the next part of it, yes, is to con continue on, keep up with that struggle. But, you know, we're also, I'm not really looking like, it, again, we're already a house of spirits. We have five different spirits. Right. Um, I'm not looking to become a house of 15. But I am looking to put those five in as many places as I can. And so that is, and that's that's a challenge, even with, you know, a deal with, you know, technically it's flying up above you and just about every state mm -hmm. and national and all that. And that's, a, that's amazing. But it's another thing to build a brand and to have people actually recognize, you know, who is Denord and what is this product? And as much as, you know, I think people look for lightning in a bottle, um, it doesn't typically happen. Any brand that you've seen explode overnight didn't explode overnight. There was actually a team of people who probably were on the ground in every single state and they were going to the bars and the liquor stores and they were hand selling it in you know, piece by piece by piece by piece. And that's our challenge too. How many states are you available in at the moment? So we're distributed in 14, but we're okay. we're mostly focused in Minnesota and Georgia. We have um, We also have some business in Louisiana and in Florida. And, um, you know, we're adding states, you know, as we can. But the thing that we don't want to do as a, as a small business, um, who people often think that we are larger than we are, the thing that we don't want to do is we don't want to go into a state and not be able to support it. Right. right? Because one That's of the, the worst, man. <laughs> one of the lessons for me in looking at uh, everyone knows their business. And when you walk into a liquor store and they're like, yeah, I've never heard of you. Like, people aren't going to buy this. If that liquor store takes a chance on you and brings you in, but then you don't show up and hand sell and do all the things it's going to take, it's like, not only have I burned them, but I've burned them on the next craft brand that's going to walk through that same door. And so we aren't going to be those people. So we have to take things as we can handle them. You know, we move a little 
a little slower sometimes and than uh, perhaps even I would like. But I can say that wherever <laughs> we are, we have the support behind it. Slower. You've been in production for nine years. I don't know if slow operations would be the the uh, adjective I'd use to describe it. But uh, no, I, I understand that it is it's frustrating when you know we pick something up that's just coming to market and then you place an order for it a month later and it's not available. And I do want to be in Indiana because I was born in Indiana. I was born in Marion County. Oh, were um, you? Yeah, I was born you know in a hospital down the street from the RCA dome. And so, so, so one day, one sweet day, um, when I moved to Minnesota, I moved from Bloomington. Right, I didn't grow up in Indianapolis, but I you know was in Bloomington until I was eight years old. So I still have there's still like some vestiges of Hoosier in me, and so yeah, and, yeah. Well, yeah. I would love to have it. You know. I've still got one place left that can still buy. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but apart from that, um, are there any online retailers? Can people buy direct from you? Where can people get it? If you it's can, and you can go to our website. Um, and from our website, you can, there's a both a where to buy if you're looking for it. We always want to support our retailers, but also if you want to buy, um, if we're not distributed in your state, uh, you can find it there. So, you know, go to the Google, look for Denord Social Spirits, and you can get it shipped right to your door. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, the website is denordsocialspirits.com. That's what I thought. So there is an S on there. Um, and please, everybody out there, check out the Step Up Foundation. Again, uh, Chris mentioned if you're interested in, in any of those programs, definitely get in contact and check out all the people that are supporting that um, in every possible way that you can support. And uh, the Denord Foundation as well, particularly if you are anywhere in the Midwest, you know, uh, I think there's one good. One thing that the Midwesterners are good at is supporting each other and holding these kinds of things mm -hmm. up, especially with the money you're talking about getting like pushed in and looking for 20 grand. Amazing. Amazing that you got that support right out the gate. So uh, I appreciate you coming on the show, Chris. I know this has been a couple of years in the making and God, and now I feel bad having tried to drag you onto the show a couple of years ago now, knowing what was going on, <laughs> you know, no, like, no. Oh, wow. That was probably one of those just annoying solicitations. Like, uh, yeah, dude, no, I don't have time. Fuck off. <laughs> I mean, back then, like people were reaching out. Delta Airlines was reaching out and we were blowing them. Right. Out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think <laughs> that they probably take precedence. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, is that um, believe it or not, um, and this is cool because I like being able to just chat like and just, you know, bullshit a little bit. But um, there are people who are who are designed to be in front of cameras and all that, and I'm just not one of them. And so I, you know, the media stuff uh, during that time period was particularly hard because mm -hmm. what what the story people wanted to talk about was the first half of the story that I wanted to talk about, right. and and that was you know look around you everything's on fire right mm -hmm. tell us about how everything's on fire and how does that make you feel and. You know, I, I I don't know that I've cried as much as I did in those in that in 2020. I mean, it was it was devastating. But that's the first half. The, the story I wanted to talk about was, yes, all of that happened. And for reasons that you don't have time to talk about in, a, in an interview, it needed to happen. Right. But what's important is what happens now and what comes next. So let's not just do the thing where we talk about destruction and fires and all that type of stuff. Let's talk about the world we're in today. Let's talk about how people are stepping up, right? And you talk about Step Up Foundation. That wouldn't have happened but for 2020, or at least maybe it would have happened, but it'd be 10 years down the road. 
Right. But that's happening today. There are people who have jobs today because of that foundation, because of the change in mindset that came in 2020. But that's the story I want to talk about. And I wasn't really in the greatest place to talk about it then. Sure. Uh, and so it, it probably is fortuitous for us both that, you know, here we've, we finally get this opportunity to connect and we can talk about both what was, but also what is and what's going to be. And that's the exciting part. Yeah, absolutely. If we don't move forward, then uh, all of it was for nothing. So, you know, obviously you're at the forefront and at the intersection of a lot of that stuff happening. We're going to keep an eye out uh, for all the moves you're making. And I'm definitely going to keep an eye out for uh, some Denord coming into Indy. So, and come on down, have some drinks, man. You know, and next time you're in the in the vicinity, you know, welcome to to drop by and have some beverages with me at the Inferno Room. We'll make it happen. I still got family out there. Well, I appreciate it, Chris. And uh, until next time, everybody, you can... Um, I, I'm back, I guess. So you can um, find me at shiftdrinkpodcast.com. All the uh, prior episodes are still up. And um, it's been a while. And and just as a short wrap-up note here, guys, um, one of the things that hit real hard and that it, uh, led to me taking such a long hiatus was the last interview I recorded was with my very good friend, uh, Brother Cleve, um, who passed away uh, almost exactly a year ago. Um, and so um, I, I wanted to kind of mention that in case you hadn't gone back and listened to the interview, we actually were able to um, get that done just just a few months before he passed. But luckily, he was uh, able to get his bar in New York going and, and you know, um, great friend. And I miss him dearly. And, uh, you know, just uh, it hit hard. And with all the other things that were kind of happening in, in the hospitality industry uh, kind of led to that big, long hiatus. So uh, we're back. We're moving forward. Um, subscribe. Check everything out. Shiftdrinkpodcast.com. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.